0: I'm glad to be here with you. Um, we, we are native Wichitans, and we enjoyed our time abroad in Atlanta and Memphis. Had great experiences. Fantastic people uh, to serve among the body of Christ, and it was a th- it was thrilling to consider to come back home and to be on Eastminster's team. Uh, to be back in Kansas, where the wind does not relent. Um, <laughs> And neither does the kindness of those who call Kansas home. And so we are excited to be back here. I'm also thrilled to be here to share the word this morning from Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to cover the first major parable from Jesus' ministry. We're going to cover verses 1 through 20. I'll read the passage, then I'll share some thoughts from Mark chapter 4 this morning. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teachings said, listen, a farmer went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because of the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Others' seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear again. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, "'Whoever has ears, let them hear.'" When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to on those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word, The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown in good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's have a quick prayer this morning. God, we thank you that you're a good and generous God, and I pray that as we open up our hearts and minds to your word, that you would speak to us, that you cause us to be transformed and fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, even though I have attended church uh, many times growing up as a youngster, uh, my faith officially began in an unusual place. Uh, it didn't happen to begin in a church service, it didn't happen to begin at Westminster Woods or a summer camp experience like that. It actually began in a, in a student school counselor office at Mays High School. I was a freshman in high school, and every single one of us were required to report to the school counselor so they could begin to talk to us about college, I mean, so we could begin to plot our path forward, what we might want to do with our life. And I remember while I was sitting there uncomfortably in the chair, I was one of these do-gooder kids, and I didn't want to be anywhere close to the principal's office, so I was really uncomfortable. And I remember my school counselor asked me a provocative question. She said, how are you going to change the world? Never like thinking of that question, the first time I heard it, it was quite ridiculous uh, because I was a, a small and I was a timid person. I thought if there's anyone who's capable of changing the world, it's certainly not me. And so I tried to dismiss the question like many things that my teacher said throughout the rest of that day. But for whatever reason, this question, how are you going to change the world? It began to continue to eat away at me, eat away at my mind, eat away at my heart. It began to want to reckon with it. But at that, about that same time, I began to attend a couple of Christian outings with some of my Christian friends. At Mays High School, we had an early morning prayer meeting that I would stop in from time to time. And I was impressed by the faith and the passion of my peers. I was invited to youth group with my brother and with some other friends, and I began to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And very clearly for the first time I heard the message that Jesus was changing the world. That he's changing us, that he's actually making us new creations as he was making the world all the way new around us. so it was there at that moment, I had a crossroads. I knew that I wasn't gonna change the world on my own because I was breaking the world because of my decisions and because of some of the patterns of my behavior. So if I wanted to change the world, I needed to be changed. It was impossible for me to do on my own, and so I yielded to Jesus that day. Then at the same time, I heard the gospel call, which said, now go back out into the world and watch what God is doing, and join him with the way that he's changing the world. So I decided to, decided to get right to work. I went to my first group of friends, which I was in the skater gang in uh, May's High, where the big jinko, saggy jeans, and we looked pretty sinister. And so I went to these guys, and I began to talk about how I was going to church, and I was studying the Bible. And about four or five days later, they gave me a new nickname, which was God Boy, so I thought, how original, guys. Uh, but that got kind of old and a little lame, and so I decided to, I kind of distanced myself from those friends in order not to be ridiculed for my faith. I went from different people in my life, some family members, some friends, uh, tell them about my church going and try to invite them uh, to youth group. But I remember my early attempts to change the world kind of came to a head one day at work. Uh, my first job was at a dry cleaners. I was at the counter taking shirts and putting them back to be dry cleaned. I was talking to my coworker during a shift about what I was learning at church. I asked her if she was attending church at this time and she should join me if if she wasn't attending a church. And I couldn't predict this, but she began to break down and to sob. She felt quite judged by my inquiry but my intrusion into her life. And so it, the rest of our shift was kind of awkward because every time there was no customers in the building, she would be sobbing uncontrollably. And then when a customer was approaching our door, she would wipe the tears away from her eyes in order to try to finish the shift. We didn't speak to one another the rest of the time, obviously. But I remember driving home that night after my shift going, I don't think my attempt to change the world is going very well. And maybe I should find a better way. Or maybe there's not even a chance for me, a person like me, to change the world. Have you ever been there before? You had every intention of making an impact and having influence, particularly about your faith upon maybe loved ones, maybe a spouse, maybe kids, maybe parents, maybe next-door neighbors or coworkers, and you don't know where to begin Maybe timidity holds us back a little bit. Maybe a couple of attempts that don't end up panning out so well cause us not to try anymore. And it gets difficult to figure out how shall we go forward in the midst of this ambiguity. It's my contention that this is where the disciples are in our text this morning. Just to give a little bit of review about the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark starts off with a quick pace. Jesus is preaching in the area of Galilee, he's preaching, he's teaching, and he's healing and casting out demons. He is so popular that Mark tells us by the end of chapter one that he can no longer go to the villages and towns because of all the crowds there. He has to stay in remote places, but people still go everywhere looking for him. Jesus is like a rock star in Galilee at this time. But in Mark two and three we see this interesting plot that Mark Mark begins to build. As quickly as Jesus' popularity is rising, so is the conflict against him. We notice in early in chapter 2, Jesus preaches and teaches and he heals a man, which causes great controversy among those who are his opponents. And it continues to build until Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where his opponents say that they want to see Jesus not just go away, but to be destroyed. And so as we saw last week with Matt Jaderson's message, this conflict, this uh, competition against Jesus, this disdain for his ministry even begins to work within his family. His family would like to take him back home because they believe Jesus is out of his mind. And his opponents, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they say that Jesus is so dangerous that he seems to be in league with the evil one himself, Jesus is at an interesting crossroads in his ministry, and I bet you his disciples are going, what exactly did we sign up for? Maybe it's time for us to break rank with Jesus and to go back home. Well, it seems to come to the fore here in Mark chapter 4 because Jesus does something unique. He begins to change the way he teaches. We notice in Mark chapter 3, Jesus begins to tell some little parables, but here is the first major parable of his ministry. But before we get to his parable itself, we gotta talk about what a parable is. A parable is a unique form of teaching in Jesus' day. Um, A parable is literally defined as to throw alongside one another. If you're familiar with the parables of Jesus, you know that oftentimes he talks about the kingdom of God through these parable stories. He talks about the kingdom of God by talking about a fisherman going out and getting a net full of fish, or he talks about the kingdom of God like a a, a boy who runs away, and when he comes back home, his father runs out to meet him. So Jesus is trying to say something very difficult through an indirect means so that people receive His teaching, I think this is kind of like a backdoor cut in the game of basketball, a misdirection, where you move the defense one direction so you can get some open space towards the basket in the opposite direction. Aristotle himself called parables real fiction, realistic fiction. He says these stories are interesting. They're not myth. They're not not sci-fi out there. This is not Star Wars. Some of us love Star Wars, some of us can't even stand Star Wars. They're realistic, but there's a few things about them that are odd, that are absurd, that are unique, that cause us to want to listen further. And so here we have Jesus wading into difficult waters, people who've rejected him, people who've accepted him, and he begins to tell them the truth of God through the story of parables. Parables. But why exactly does Jesus use this type of genre? I mean, he's already doing fine. Early in the gospel, he has such great authority in his teaching and the crowds are coming to him. Why would he change his tenor with this type of teaching? Well, he tells us why in verses 11 through 13 of our passage this morning. He said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. And ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus, asked, then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Notice the reason Jesus uses a parable. It's not to bring crystal clear clarity, but to bring fuzziness and even borderline confusion about what he's trying to get after. And this is actually quite the clever way to teach because what brain um, surgeons would tell us and what pho- uh, psychologists tell us that when a, when a brain is confused or frustrated, every single chamber ever begins to go to work. You ever been given a really tough problem before and you try to go to bed and it shows up in your dreams and you see it everywhere you look? It's because your brain will not stop until you can figure this mystery out. So Jesus is teaching parables not to get the critical acclaim that he received early in the gospel, but to bring a bit of a challenge to his teaching so that people continue to discuss it further. To put it another way, a parable might be an explosive story with a really long fuse. Because this is what would happen in the hearing of a parable. They would hear the story, they might ask Jesus some questions, they might even argue with him a little bit about what he means, Then they would go home, one New Testament scholar said, and they would discuss it with one another. They would say, what do you think the rabbi meant when he told us that crazy story? What do you think he meant? I think he means this. And then that person might say, no, I think he meant this. And all of a sudden, they're engaging in a depth of conversation on the road that they have never experienced before. Jesus seeks to reach people in a subversive way and to challenge them deeply, with a loaded story. This is what A.J. Levine, Amy Levine, who's a New Testament scholar, says about parables. She said, What makes the parables mysterious or difficult is that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values, our own lives. They bring to the surface unasked questions and they reveal the answers we we have always known but refuse to acknowledge. Our reaction to them should be one of resistance rather than acceptance. So New Testament scholars like Amy Jill Levine and others say Jesus is offering hard challenges through lovely stories that people would consider. And when Ginger and I were in the South, and we heard this new phrase that we'd never heard before until we got there. If a preacher ever hits too close to home in a sermon, they would say, pastor, you've gone to Medlin. And it wouldn't end in a G, but in a kind of an N apostrophe. Uh, and that's what they would say on the way out because you're hitting too close to home. We don't want to talk about these things. We don't want to discuss these things. You've gone to meddling. When Jesus tells parables, the last reaction he's looking for is getting to the back of the sanctuary after the sermon and have everyone shake his hand and say, well done, rabbi. What Jesus was doing was trying to rattle brains, try to cause a bit of an uproar. So perhaps transformation could happen in the midst of its chaos. Levine says further, Religion has been defined as designed to comfort the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We do well to think the parables of Jesus as doing the afflicting. Therefore, if we hear a parable and think, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. According to Scholarship, a parable causes us to rethink everything. A parable is so strong and so has so much great potential, it should come with the Surgeon General's warning label slapped on it before we get to listen. Before we engage with the parable, we should bring a helmet and a mouthpiece and be ready for battle because it's going to get really interesting and the story seeks to take no prisoners. It tries to do deep work within us. So with that in mind, let's go back to the parable that Jesus shares from Mark chapter 4. Here's a summary of it once again. Jesus talks about a farmer who goes out to sow seed. And he says that he sows it in different places. Some of the seed falls upon the path where people walk and because It hasn't been plowed there. Immediately the birds come and they take that seed away. Then he says some of the seed comes along the rocky places. And because of that, there's not enough soil to develop its good root system. It initially springs up out of the ground, but because it's not strong enough underneath, and when the sun comes at its brightest, it scorches the the, the plant and it withers. The third place it goes is among the thorns and because there's enough soil there, it does try to establish a root system but because the thorny plant is stronger than the young vulnerable plant, it chokes out its life source and it no longer has an attempt to bear fruit. But Jesus gives us hope at the end of this story. He says the good soil is where the seed falls as well and it comes up out of the ground with a strong root system and it's multiplied 30, 60, and 100 times. On the surface, this sounds like a normal story. And most people in Jesus' day were, f- were familiar with the crop cycles of their country. They were familiar with how difficult it was to grow crops in their arid region. And so they were aware that farmers would go out and sow seed and they would look for good soil. What is absurd about this story, and what would have caused a reaction, maybe even laughter in Jesus' initial audience, is why in the world is this farmer Throwing seed where he knows nothing is going to grow. I mean, why is he throwing it along the path that hasn't been plowed up yet so that a new, some new dirt could be covered over it so it could have a safe place to grow? Why is he scattering it, seems recklessly, in places where historically things have not grown, but even more so? This crop multiplying 30, 60, 100 times would have been something that they would never would have imagined. People in Jesus' day never thought they would grow in their uh, material wealth, and so to have a farmer, particularly one this reckless, get lucky enough to grow a plant that multiplies 30, 1600 times and then make bank at the marketplace was something out of this world. So what exactly is Jesus trying to convey in this story? This is exactly why his disciples pulled him aside and say, hey, with our backstage passes, Can you hook a brother up here and tell us what's going on? Because no one seems to know what's going on in this story. So in a rare moment, Jesus gives an interpretation to the story. He says, the farmer sows the seed, which the seed is the word of God. And the seed that falls upon the path is a seed that's vulnerable. And as soon as this person in the path receives the word, Satan comes and he takes the seed from them. He says, when the the seed goes on the rocky soil, it's a short-term faith. It doesn't get its deep root system. It springs up. It looks healthy, but ultimately it cannot withstand the harsh realities of life. Then Jesus talks about the seed that's sung, uh, sown among thorns, that the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and other troubles in this world choke its life source, where it has a hard time excelling in the faith. But before we're all discouraged, Jesus says, the word that is sown in good soil, it multiplies 30, 60, and 100 times So what is the punchline of the parable At least in this moment in Mark's gospel Remember it seems like the disciples Are worrying about acceptance versus rejection They see people rejecting Jesus And perhaps violence Going to break out against Jesus But then they see the massive crowds coming to Jesus And they're receiving his message warmly Jesus tries to Open up their minds a little bit He says even acceptance is not enough You'll notice in our all four soils of our story this morning, everyone has received the word of God initially, but only one out of the four has a long-lasting fruit that lasts. And so Jesus says, not just those who accept and those who reject, but even among an early acceptance, there's this rejection waiting around the corner. But those who do endure, those who are planted in the good soil, they will grow in their faith, A lot, lot deeper and a lot wider and a lot higher than their imaginations could have ever have imagined. There's just a few things I want to conclude this morning as we look at this passage. The first thing is this: is that the message is already being proclaimed. The message of Jesus is already being proclaimed. Notice the only thing that Jesus doesn't talk about in this passage is who is the Word of God. And so some people in our scholarship say that the Word of God is the Bible, and so we get to go out and share the Bible. But most scholarship says that the word of God is Jesus, who is the word of God. And so we'll notice that God is the one who's out there sowing Jesus in all the world. And what the New Testament tells us in different places is that even as early as the resurrection of Jesus, the, the gospel is being proclaimed into all the earth throughout all the cosmos God has been speaking even before the church really got going and really got vast and big all over the world. God has been speaking. And this should be a comfort to some of us because we are so timid. We're so reluctant to maybe stand for our faith and to share about what God has done for us to our friends because we don't want to say the wrong thing. And and who knows, we don't know where to begin. Here's the comfort this morning. We don't have to make God turn up. But God already moves in front of us. He's already gone before us. So the invitation that we have is not to try to make God turn up in places where he doesn't seem to be, but to join him where he's already at work and to witness what God is already doing in the world, to uncover the mystery that is the gospel to those who've heard its whisper up to this point. And so have hope this morning, friends. The message is already being proclaimed. We're just curators in the museum pointing to the signs of the arrival of God's kingdom. The second thing is this, is that God isn't stingy. If God is the sober in this passage, then God is spreading the word of God as far and wide as possible. Remember, the absurd part of this story is that this farmer seems to be trying with, with some ingenuity or maybe with some, some luck, trying to find a way to grow plants in places where they normally have not gone, grown. Here's the picture of God in this passage, that God is not stingy, but God is eager to try to find a soil anywhere that he might find it so that he could grow plants that work for the kingdom of God. My early picture of God was a God who was quite stingy. I don't know about you, but I had the picture that I had of God early in my faith was a God who had a furrowed brow, who had like a, you know, those clicky pins and passive aggressive is like clicking the pins like... Principal Strickland from Back to the Future or something like that. And he had like an agabus of where he would send people, stingy with what he was doing in the world. Here's the great truth. God can still be sovereign, but not stingy. Notice the other characters that Jesus uses in parables for the father. He's the one who restores a prodigal son. He's the one who excuses and pardons the people that we would not excuse or pardon. So what we find in this passage is a provocative truth, a confrontational truth. God is reaching further than we would reach to find people to turn to him. And so what we have as a challenge this morning is to not limit where we think God might work because who knows who God might find in places where we have not looked. The third thing is that hostile forces are at work in the world. There is a a warning in this passage. To the seed that was sown on the path that's left and then exposed is vulnerable. Satan comes after it receives the word and he steals the word away. We need to be reminded that there's a hostile environment in the world around us. We do have an enemy among us. Now Jesus is victorious over the enemy, but he still works around us. Particularly for those of us who are new in our faith this morning. Let's not be too cavalier about our young faith and get around to developing our faith sometime down the road. But let's be disciplined. Let's be eager as early as possible. Let's find covering among the community of God, other mature Christians who can teach us the early steps of our faith. And for those who are mature among us, there are vulnerable new Christians around us who will be plagued by temptation and voices from their past, voices deep within that accuse them and tell them that they'll never be enough. That God's grace isn't for them. It's important for us this morning to hear the New Testament admonition to look out for the needs of others above our own. So maybe what God is calling some of us in this room, mature Christians, is to leave our needs behind so that we can rally around the needs of those vulnerable new Christians among us. And Last but not least, what this parable teaches us, that small starts lead to massive developments. One of the great mysteries of our world is how such a small seed if it's buried in the right soil and given the right conditions, can grow into a plant and a crop exponentially larger than where it began. There's something interesting about taking a small seed, and the seeds in this culture were so small compared to ours, and to the point where if you would drop a seed in the Palestinian culture, you may not be able to find it in the soil after you drop it because it would blend in to the rest of the, of the dirt and the soil around it. There's something mysterious about how when it's covered over, And given some time and some patience, how it can create something exponentially larger than its very beginning. I think some of us need to hear that again this morning, that God starts in small ways, but given God's infinite grace, it can reach a great potential. Some of us are risk analysis people. We don't want to begin something unless we know we're going to succeed or it's going to go well. With this Parable teaches us and convinces us and tries to goad us to consider is that we don't have to start with something large and something that's sure and something that's turnkey. We can start with something small, and in God's economy, it can be raised into something quite powerful and quite majestic. I learned this back in those days when I was struggling to figure out how to change the world around me. I remember I was in art class one day. And uh, our art teacher was so cool that if you didn't feel it that day, you could have a mental health day and just kind of kill time in his class before your next time. And so there I was painting a picture, and the girl that normally sat to the desk across from me, she was wanting to have one of those mental health days. And uh, I was in a Bible study in my youth group, and we were supposed to memorize scripture, and I was terrible at memorizing at that time in my life. And so I would write the verses on three-by-five cards. Imagine this within me before smartphones or anything like that. I'd write them on three-by-five cards, and every moment that I had that was vacant, I would try to memorize Bible verses. I was still afraid that they were going to kick me off the island if I didn't memorize Bible verses in time. And so I was there painting, and I thought, okay, Christina, could you help me memorize these verses? And so we spent all of that art period going through foundational truths of the Christian life, and there was one from the book of James that resonated with her. And she said, this is an interesting verse. What should I do next? I said, well, James comes from the Bible, and it's in the New Testament. If you don't have one, you could probably swipe from, from a local hotel. The Gideons put them in the drawers there. And uh, you can just go read. At that point, there was no Holy Spirit goosebumps. There was no hallelujah chorus in the background. It was just a couple of friends talking over three-by-five cards. And later that day, she went home and read some more of the book of James. I graduated from high school, went off to Sterling College. She was a senior in high school. She was trying to track me down. Once again, this is before cell phones and stuff. And so I came home for spring break, and mom said, there's a girl trying to call you. I think she wants to ask you on a date or something like that. I called her up, and she told me this story. She said, that day that we read your cards, I went home and read some more of the Bible. Then I went to a church, and then I joined its youth group. And then I went to a summer camp. And on the last night at summer camp, I gave my life to Jesus. And it all started in our conversation in our class. That moment taught me that the big wide world out there isn't resisting God's gospel, but there's an eager receptivity to it if we would just step out and not be afraid to start small. Some of us have spouses, we have kids, we've got extended relatives twice removed that we're really worried about. We feel like we've been praying for them, we've been inviting them, but nothing seems to be happening. What my relationship with Christina taught me with just some note cards is that anything can happen in God's wide world around us. And he's asking us to adventure out into this world around us and to join him in his work. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you that you're good and generous, God. And Lord, I thank you that you move us today, that, you're, that your scripture transforms us and we get to move into deeper obedience. And so God, today I pray as we uh, meditate on the scripture and as we prepare to take up an offering, that we would give back to you as you've given to us. We give back to you of our resources because you've graciously given us all things, but God, we give our lives to you as well understanding that you include us in the process of scattering the word of God to the ends of the earth. So God, may, we, may you find us to be eager participants. May we have wide eye wonder about what you might do even when we start small in the world around us. Ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.